Well, good morning. I'm really excited to be with you today. Like Pastor Matthew said, my name is Tyler Bacher, and I am the senior high lead here at New Hope Church. I've been here just about a year now, actually a little over a year now, and it's been just a delight to be able to get to know the students and work to help them get to know each other, get to grow with their leaders, find their place here in our community, and come to know Jesus more. But I'm also excited to be able to kind of share in this capacity today, to be able to open the scriptures with you and to be able to see what it has to say for us kind of as a whole group together. Because a couple weeks ago, our students talked about the importance of community, being unified around following Jesus together, putting others first, and trusting that selfless service and humility is enough to do what God has called us to in this world. With those things, we can build a beautiful community together. Today, though, is kind of a prequel to that idea. It's set before it. Because before we can really get at community building together around Jesus, we need to examine how we individually relate to Jesus. Or let me rephrase it like this. How does God relate to us? What does God think about you? How does he feel towards you? How does he respond to you. Because you see, like the way that we conceive of God's relation to us affects everything in our lives, including our ability to have community with each other. It kind of bleeds out into everything. And this isn't just like our head knowledge that Jesus loves us. Like we can know that at an intellectual level, but what matters is what's sunk into our very beings, our subconscious, our gut. When we pry at that level of ourselves, We might find other things and feelings about how God might relate to us. Maybe we do find that deep down we do have a deep sense of God's love for us. Maybe we find a core belief that God is stern, just, but pretty cold. Maybe we find that we have a a deep fear that he's wrathful towards us, and we can't quite shake that. Maybe we fear that he just doesn't care about us that much personally. There are probably other answers that we could find deep down within us if we start kind of digging there. And we're not going to be able to, in a day, cultivate like a quote-unquote right idea of how God sees us at that level. But I'm hoping today to start to probe that idea, uh, thinking about how God relates to us at that core level of ourselves. Who is he to us? How does he see us? How does he approach us in truly all moments of life? What always gets me thinking about this and brings it back to me is the story of Elijah, which we'll be looking at today. It spans his whole story from 1 Kings 17 to 2 Kings 2. And thankfully we're not reading that whole thing today. We're gonna be skipping around a little bit. We're not spending the next three hours here. But personally, I found that Elijah's story takes on a whole different tone when it's put in its full context. A lot of us are probably familiar with the story of Elijah and like the prophets of Baal and fire coming down, or maybe even God's still small voice. But put in its actual sequence, it's really affecting. And I think some resonant uh, themes will emerge kind of as we go through it that we'll be able to relate to. So let's get into it. To set the stage a little bit first, though, a lot has happened to Israel as a nation before the time of Elijah. Like starting at Moses, the Israelites came into the promised land of Canaan, became a monarchy, and then went through Saul, David, and Solomon as kings. Now Solomon's son was not as wise as his father. He caused a revolt and split the nation into two, with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Five more kings down the line, and we're at Ahab. The king 
in our story today, which according to the end of 1 Kings 16, and a little bit of editorializing on my part, did more in the evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of the kings before him, but he also married Jezebel, a foreigner, which was frowned upon because it led to him serving Baal, the foreign god, and worshiping him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. All this to say, he has a heck of a rap sheet. Like this, that's not exactly how you want to be described. So in the face of this walking disaster of a king, Elijah enters the scene seemingly out of nowhere at the beginning of chapter 17. All we really know about him is that he's a Tishbite from Tishbe, which means we don't really know that much. If Tishbe is a specific place, it's never mentioned again, and we have no idea where it actually was. This provides kind of an interesting picture, though. When Elijah, just some guy from seemingly nowhere, confronts Ahab, an individual who is supposed to be the bastion of God and his people. So this nobody Elijah comes up in 17.1 and says to the king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain for the next few years except at my word. And while this might seem like a bog standard punishment, there, uh, <clears throat> God is actually taking a direct shot at Baal, the false God that Ahab now serves with this decree. As one commentary put it, Baal is the rider of the clouds, the god of rain and fertility, and therefore all of the riches. If it doesn't rain at God's command, the power of Baal is called directly into question, setting up for a final showdown of sorts that we'll see in a bit. So after this pronouncement, God tells Elijah to go into hiding for the next few years out of Ahab's reach, so he just can't come and kill him. At the place where God will provide for him, even through this drought, and just like God said, three years pass, no rain comes. At the beginning of chapter 18, he says, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. And on the way, this will be important, just kind of tuck this in the back of your head till later. He sees a man named Obadiah, who was a palace administrator for Ahab. He reveals that Ahab's wife, Jezebel, had been killing off the prophets of God for the last few years but that he had managed to hide away a hundred prophets who were ready to kind of come out when the time was right. After this, we finally get just a wonderful reunion of Ahab and Elijah, which we'll read about in chapter 18, starting in verse 17. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, O troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. Now summon all the people from all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel and bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word all through Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah said to the people, how long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let, the, let Baal's prophets choose for themselves and cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I'll prepare the other bull and put it on the wool and not set fire to it. 
Then you will call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given, or given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. They danced around the altar that they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so this standoff begins. Effectively, all the prophets of Baal and Asherah come across all of Israel to this place to answer the king's call. They come to Mount Carmel, a 1,600-foot mountain in which you can see the sea and vast swaths of Israel. This is the scene and the setting for this showdown. And the prophets of Baal go first, and obviously it doesn't go very well. Imagine nearly a thousand people screaming to their God, and nothing happens. Elijah begins to taunt them. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Funnily enough, it seems as though he's taunting the prophets of Baal with their own stories. The prophets of Baal told stories about how it was a challenge to find Baal when he wasn't in his house. There was a distinct possibility for them that their God could just be wandering and they needed to get his attention. He could just not be home. What do we gotta do? And so he's messing with them with legitimate concerns that they're having. (laughs) Then the prophets start getting desperate and mutilating themselves, which is also in line with pagan practice of the day, which sees that the God's attention can be drawn with the drawing of blood, but night comes and nothing works. And in chapter 1830, where we'll pick up, it's Elijah's turn. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came with him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descending from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stood forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then fire from the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when they saw this, the people fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let any one of them get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them taken down to the Kidron Valley and slaughtered there. 
Now notice, backing up just a little bit, the stark difference between Elijah and the other prophets. Instead of trying to leverage God to get him to do what he wanted, like the prophets of Baal, God asks God to do what he is convinced he is his will, as has been revealed to him through communication and communion with God. It reveals a relationship between God and his servant, which is at the heart of what empowers Elijah to stand up against such incredible odds. Elijah's God isn't distant. He's not disinterested. He's not waiting for Elijah to fail or to handle things on his own. Elijah's God is there right with him. Now, needless to say, though, God answers definitively. Everything that was his altar is gone, which is wild. A ton of water, a bunch of stones, everything just gone. And the people present, interestingly enough, seem convinced, which reveals that a trap has been set. Nearly all the prophets of Baal in Israel were in attendance, and they're wiped out. This seems like the end of it. Further, in the last few verses of 18, rain finally re- returns. Kind of like one more like sticking it to Baal. Like, oh, you couldn't call fire down, and now there's rain, oh God of thunder. So it seems to be the end of it. And it seems like Elijah is stoked. In verse 46, it says that the power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now this is my reading of it. I don't have any academic basis for this, but it seems like Elijah just had like the most amazing spirit-provided adrenaline rush imaginable. Like the dude is having a runner's high of runner's high. He's been running for three years, and he finally gets to go home. He and his God stood toe-to-toe with effectively a nation and one, hands down. In a way that no one could dismiss that Yahweh, Elijah's God, is the true God. No reasonable person would dare stand against Yahweh. The nation will return to being righteous and being his ambassadors to the world. This is great. If this was a movie, we're at the end of something like Shawshank Redemption, where like the music is swelling, Elijah's like basking in the rain, tucks in his cloak, and just bolts back home. Roll the credits. If only that's where his story ended. We'll pick it up at the beginning of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. This is quite the twist, and certainly not the homecoming that Elijah was anticipating. Not only is his life immediately threatened, but it's clear that the monarchy will not be serving Yahweh. Even after everything that has happened and in the face of irrefutable evidence, they're not going to turn. And it's clear from Israel's history, as Israel's leaders go, so the people will follow. On the flip side, Elijah has also just witnessed the ultimate power and provision of God for the last three years. It's clear that he's with him and not unreasonable that he could protect him now. Even so, 
He bolts. He gets out. Everyone seems to not quite be making sense, and I think it's worth addressing that for a moment, just just a little sidebar. Because we might like to think that our rational, logical, like conscious brains guide most of our decision making, when in reality a large body of evidence show that it's our subconscious gut, like emotional responses that greatly influence how we make decisions, how we perceive our world, and how we kind of interact in relationships. To the extent that often our rational brain is catching up with our gut, giving us reasons to kind of feel the way we feel reasonably. Jonathan Hyatt, a social psychologist, likens this phenomenon to our emotions and subconscious impulses being like an elephant and our like rational brains being like an elephant rider. Sometimes the rider's successful. Sometimes what we know guides us to what we do. And sometimes the elephant our emotions, our subconscious impulses, freak out, run away. There's not a lot that rider can do in that moment. For both Jezebel and Elijah, their elephants are raging. Jezebel just had the entirety of her spiritual authority stripped from her, authority that had followed her from her birth. It's not actually that surprising that she'd reject even like irrefutable evidence to try to protect her preconceived beliefs. Much to Elijah's ire. And for Elijah, imagine that you're him, having experienced the high of everything that has transpired, seeing irrefutable proof that Yahweh is God before Israel, victory over Baal, only immediately to see that rejected and threatened with death. I understand running into the wilderness. He's freaking out and absolutely done when he says, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Meaning, I'm a dead man and I'd rather be dead. He's gone from like his highest high to his lowest low in three seconds flat. It seems like he sees himself as a failure. He seems to identify with the failures of his people that they still, after everything, won't follow God kind of like they've always done. So let's take a breath here. We've covered a lot of ground, and I want to ask this. Have you felt like Elijah in this moment, where the circumstances of your life feel like they're crushing you into dust? Maybe you feel like you have profoundly failed, or maybe the people you count on have so thoroughly disappointed you that you don't even know where to go from here. Are you able to slip into Elijah's shoes because you've been there too? I bet that's most of us. And with that being the case, I want you to hear God's words to Elijah and take in his overall posture towards his servant. See how God responds to his servant, how God feels towards him. And know that he sees you and feels towards you in the same way. Because now we're starting to get to the heart of it all. How does God respond when Elijah's elephant is freaking out? when Elijah's at his lowest, when he thinks he's failed, when he would rather be dead. We see at verse six. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, 
the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. God's response here, for now through an angel, but ultimately through him, is compassionate. He doesn't reprimand or rebuke. He's not angry. He doesn't have wild expectations that weren't met. He doesn't demand Elijah come to his senses. He doesn't even start working through with Elijah what he's going through. He just sustains him. He calls Elijah to himself, beckoning him towards Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God to receive his commandments and hear about God's project for his people. Elijah Elijah now comes to process what has taken place since, what he has faced, how the people failed, maybe how he feels like he's failed. And And while Moses met God at the mountaintop, Elijah meets him huddling in a cave. Even so, God meets him there, as we see in verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go and stand out on the mountain in my presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord is not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mountain of the cave, mouth of the cave. Going back to Elijah's complaint, it's kind of interesting. He says he's the only prophet left when he knows from Obadiah there's at least a hundred left ready to come out. He says that the Israelites have rejected God's covenant, torn down his altars, and put his prophets to death with the sword. But he just saw a multitude of Israelites side with Yahweh. And all the prophets of Baal in the land are gone. It might be easy for us to be kind of armchair critics in this moment, uh, seeing Elijah is irrational or filled with self-pity when he had the information to kind of reason himself back to reality. But Elijah's a real person. Step into his shoes for a moment. Imagine the anxiety he felt and utter disappointment and futileness that he must have felt when he saw that the problem of Baal, which absolutely should be done, was going to linger on. But again, even with all this, God responds compassionately. God tells him that he's coming to meet him. And we get these iconic verses that describe how there's a great wind that tears apart the mountain, and that there's an earthquake, and that there's fire. But God isn't in any of those. Instead, he communicates with a gentle whisper. It's as though God is communicating through all these cataclysmic events that he is still the God who won the challenge at Carmel. All nature bows to him, but that's not how he speaks to his servants. Nor do his people need to scream and shout and draw blood for the hope of getting his attention. He's right there willing to gently speak with us. And so Elijah comes out of hiding to speak in verse 14. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus 
When you're there, you're going to anoint a bunch of cool people. Elijah put, or Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes their sword. Yet, I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. Notice that Elijah makes the same statement as before. Even after the earthquakes and the wind and the fire, he still needs to speak with his God. And again, no rebuke from God. He just helps him process at this point. God reveals that Elijah was not the plan to course correct the Israelites, but a part of it. There will be others after him who will play their roles that he has been teeing up this whole time. And even though Elijah has felt hardship and has felt isolated, there are many other who remain faithful, doing their parts in the present to move God's plans forward. We see this as we wrap up at the beginning of verse 19. So Elijah went from here and found Elisha, son of Shephat. And what, or he was plowing the, with 12 yoke of oxen. And he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. They set out to follow Elijah, and he became his servant. So backing up just a moment before we get to Elisha and the start of his journey, we see that Elijah's questions are not all the way answered when he leaves to follow what God has told him to do. There's probably still things he needs to work through, still things he needs to process, but God has given him enough to go on. We see evidence of this almost when Elijah throws his cloak around Elisha, signaling him to be his successor. I might be editorializing just a little bit, but it almost feels like there's a twinge of regret in his voice when he says, what have I done to you? Like, this is not an easy line of work. But Elijah's ready to go. He's so bought in that he goes and slaughters his livelihood and uses his equipment to cook it. He's all in. That next generation is stepping up. And here, we see that Elijah lives long enough to see Ahab die in battle and relay a message on to his further idolatrous son that he too would die. Then seemingly having made significant peace with God, gets to experience something that very few of us do, riding a fiery chariot up to heaven. He appears one more time in our scriptures, alongside Moses and a transfigured Jesus, in the Gospels. I think it's telling that a hero of our faith who is honored in such profound ways, a chariot of fire standing beside Jesus and Moses, gets to have the experience and conversation with God that he does in chapter 19. It's not just the weak, quote unquote, who experience fear, anxiety, disappointment, feelings of futility, frustration, or hopelessness, but the most revered saints of God. It shouldn't be surprising when these things show up in our lives, and it's not something to be ashamed of. And thankfully, it's not something we have to work through alone. More specifically, we can take away from Elijah's experience that God can be approached when our subconscious, emotionally driven elephant brains are still raging before our rational riders have taken control. 
This is probably a little bit different for all of us, but for myself, it's really hard for me to go to God before I have the like, right answer figured out. I don't like to approach God when I'm angry or sad or anxious or any of these other feelings. I want to come to him when I'm like, well, not, your, or not my will, but yours be done. We're good. Let's just go do the thing. But what tremendous amount of help myself and others who might feel like that forfeit when we do this. God wants to be with us even when we don't have it figured out. Even when we're just at the lowest low, the biggest mess. He wants to be right there with us. He's not sitting in heaven judging us to not have it figured out. He wants to show us compassion and care. And like in the case of Elijah, he might not even start working through stuff with us. He might know that in this moment, you just need to be provided for. Not that he wouldn't have done that anyway, but why would we miss out on being cognizant of the gifts and graciousness that God is giving to us? Even if everything else feels like the opposite. And not only does God desire to be with us, but he wants to communicate with us. Perhaps not audibly like in the case of Elijah, although if you might get lucky, who knows. But our souls can experience the still, small voice of God. When we pray, when we speak with him, he can provide us with thoughts, direction, or even just a peace that is clearly from him. Everything, everywhere in our world demands our attention constantly. And so we need to be able to provide time, though, for this voice to appear. Our world is almost as though it is that earthquake and the winds and the fires, but that still small voice wants to break through. If we don't take time to intentionally seek God, we'll miss that communication and relationship he wishes to have with us. And we can be working towards then, kind of hearing that still small voice and being with God throughout our entire day. And finally, as we're being invited into God's plans for the world, we can be encouraged that there are always more pieces at play than we are aware of. It can be really easy to feel isolated, to feel alone, to feel like we are the last faithful person in the army of God, but that's never the case. In Elijah's day, he himself was a part of the unforeseen plans of God, coming out of nowhere to face a king. And beyond that, there were 7,000 people who were still faithful and other righteous leaders for Elijah to rise up and 100 prophets still kind of waiting in a cave as long as we know. In our day, we can be confident that God is doing amazing things in our city, our country, our world, any community that you can think of that we're just totally unaware of. We are not the last faithful followers of God, but some of the multitude, that great cloud of witnesses a small fraction of forces beyond our understanding or control. But again, even as we know this, it will take encountering God himself to help wrangle our elephants. Let's not ignore him. Let's not push him aside. Let's run to him every day, every moment, no matter what we're feeling or experiencing, and enjoy the relationship and communication he desires to have with us. Even when we feel like everything else might be burning down. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today thankful that you approach us with compassion and care and love. That you're not waiting for us to fix things to come to you, that we're, you're not expecting us to figure this out on our own, but you're willing to just sustain us, just be with us and speak to us and guide us and slowly fold us into your plan for our world. We thank you that you have done this for us, that you see us in this way. 
in your name. Amen. As we transition to a time of communion together, I want us to take this opportunity to, as we take communion, contemplate the compassion and care shown to us by God, proven through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This is a time to remember and consider the incredible love of God shown through Jesus, that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. Feel free to take the elements whenever you feel ready during this next song. But invite God into this moment with you. Ask him to show you how you really see and experience him and that he would reveal his love towards you, his abounding care and compassion today. Father God, bless these elements. Be with us as we take them. Help us remember you and your incredible act of love that you showed us. That even when we feel like everything else isn't quite working out, might be burning down. That you took the, the worst thing that could happen and brought incredible glory through it. In your name, amen.